I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey there. The ideas for these podcasts come from lots of different places. This one actually came from Alison Sokol Blosser, a previous guest, who suggested that I invite Brad Clofield, who designed their winery. I know Brad had him come to Aspen some time ago to give an architecture lecture, and I loved her idea, and I loved the conversation with Brad. It's one of the conversations that I think is kind of indicative of of the time in which we're living. It was present and long and timely and really, really enjoyable. And frankly, it probably wouldn't have happened if we weren't in this time of isolation. We'll get there in just a minute. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y K-L-E-E dot com backslash Heidi, and they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website, www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email 
custom at bestandcoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O-A-S-P-E-N.com. And mention that you heard about Best & Co. on my podcast to receive the special discount. Brad Clofield founded Allied Works in 1994 in Portland, Oregon. Since 2000, the practice has grown steadily through the completion of major museum projects, innovative educational facilities, residences, and workplaces of diverse scale, purpose, and character. Allied Works was established to engage artists, builders, and thinkers in a collective pursuit of new expression. Their ethic is boundless curiosity and uncommon commitment to creating beautiful, moving, and meaningful work. Brad and I discuss architecture, the impact of geography on creativity, ritual practice, the Robert Frost of architects, the role of the room, finding an architecture you don't yet know, that the building is never the subject nor the answer, the truth and possibilities of beauty, making contemporary relevant spiritual space, the need for God, where ethical conversations can occur, the discipline of listening, the transcendent, and hell yeses. When I was thinking about starting our conversation today, I was thinking about kind of a preparatory quick conversation that we had about when I invited you to do this. And, and we were talking about how important in these times in particular of isolation or separation, mm-hmm. the kind of attraction or seduction to like a real conversation is. And yeah. this sort of promise of an interesting conversation. And, and then I, I took a moment to think about like, well, what would be like some boring things to talk about? And, <laughs> and, and <laughs> I could list a whole bunch. <laughs> I know, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but I was thinking that one of them kind of would be weather, oh, yeah. but that there's actually something oh. that's interesting about that too. And, and I'm somewhere today where it's usually really bright and sunny, but it's gray. Mm-hmm. And and then I started thinking about how I was on the East Coast a few weeks ago and with the colder weather, I was like super productive. And and then I was thinking about your practice and choosing to uh, to be por- Portland-based and uh, the weather there. And yeah. I thought that that would actually not be a boring thing potentially yeah. to, to start talking about. Well, you know, I'm, I'm based on both coasts. In fact, my primary residence now is Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I've just been going back together, back and forth forever and ever and ever. So, and, and still now, I was, in, I was in Brooklyn this fall. Now I'm in Portland until uh, February and then back to Brooklyn. And, yeah. And do you, find, do you find yourself differently creative in these different geographical spaces? Absolutely. It's, it's like t- it, the two places appeal to the two, yeah, two needs, you know, creative needs, one for introspection, which is Oregon. In, in fact, I, I rented a house recently out six hours out into the high desert to be further <laughs> alone than you can be even in Portland, Oregon. Um, 
And then, you know, Brooklyn and, and New York City is just all about people. And you get your energy from the people. But I, I need that. I need to step back. I couldn't, I couldn't do it without Oregon, actually. Yeah. What, what other practices do you have that facilitate that, that, stepping, that stepping back and or that creation of space? Well, drawing, I guess. Drawing is when I go into my own, you know, my own thoughts and my own presence. There's no question about that. I mean, rituals, it's, it's more like thinking about ritual practice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a need I have more and more as, as, as life gets crazier, either because of the pandemic or before the pandemic. The yeah. need for kind of ritual creative practice Reading poetry means a tremendous amount to me. Words help a lot. Take me out of the day today and put you in that kind of universal place of ideas. Mm. Right? Um, yeah. And then I suppose gardening. <laughs> gardening is my other, my, other, uh, my other practice where I'm just alone. Yeah. I like both those things. I have a question about poetry because I really like poetry too. And it, it's sort of a, I don't want to say that it's a rarefied interest, but a lot of people just assume they're not interested in it. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder when you read poetry, if you hear the words in your head as mm. you read. I just, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, I come from a pretty simple background. Um, neither of my parents went to college. You know, I went to public schools out in the suburbs in Oregon. And, and so I wasn't exposed to a lot of, a lot of this. But as, as, as um, my creative practice matured, as my needs to communicate ideas matured, associated with architecture, trying to find the words that evoke the spirit of the space or the experience. You know, you, you find yourself, or I found myself communicating in more and more poetic terms. You know, I, I had someone after a talk, one of my greatest compliments I ever received after a talk in New York is someone said, you're the Robert Frost of, of architects or something like that. And I just thought, okay, that's it, I'm done. That's good, you know. But looking for the words has really led me to poetry. You know, just, I think just like originally creatively looking at the work of artists and, and, and the kind of focus that they have on different ideas, spatial, experiential, visual ideas helped me focus my creative practice that way. I mean, I guess words and language have done a kind of corollary complementary played correlated role in my in my thinking so I think that's what led me to poetry it wasn't it wasn't just you know the the muse of poetry knocking on my door one day and you know I'm such a literate individual it was really a kind of desperate search for language you know in the arts it's visual language and then and then just the evocative experiential component of words yeah it's a really interesting idea because I often think that people find their way to art, and I don't know about architecture also, uh, but definitely to visual art, because there's something that they want to communicate that they feel that words can't. 
And I've often found my role as a a sort of translator, um, someone who can kind of be Mm -hmm. of assistance um, to a creative practitioner to put some words around not just the, the, the image or the creation, but also the intention behind it. Well, isn't it what you're really, at least I would think, or at least what I'm trying to do with words when I describe my own work. Yeah, see, I don't have gallerists or, or museum directors to, to help people understand my work. I've always been envious of that, actually. Is you're trying to just open the door for people to see it. You're not really trying to describe it. You're trying to help them see it, right? So those words that might provoke something in them to open their, their kind of perception to a new work, a new experience of some kind, right? So I think that's what the language serves as, right? Because it's, it's the ineffable, right? You can't really describe it, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's right. I mean, the goal is not to take something which is esoteric or spiritual or um, experiential and try and make it didactic by explaining it. It's really about giving people access, you know, and, and language is something, I mean, we all communicate through language. So if there are certain words that can allow a grounding or, or, you know, an access or an introduction, then maybe that's enough. Right. Giving people access. That's a, that's a perfect way. And, and, And I, and I think where people have more facility, natural facility with words, than they do with visual or spatial things. So the, the, the words do give them a handhold, right? A beginning. For people who are kind of uninitiated, you know, and curious and want to try to understand it better, I think, I think those words give them a way in that they wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, so, you know, for so many people, the visual arts, you know, and, and I suppose truly artistic architecture is so foreign to them, to their day-to-day experiences, that they, they feel uncomfortable. I mean, this is the whole conversation, isn't it? <laughs> that they feel uncomfortable around it. So I think by offering them those words, you know, that invitation, that access, it, it kind of demystifies it a bit for them and lets them take that step. Because that's all you really wanted to do is to take that step. Yeah, I really, I want people to find enough comfort in something that's uncomfortable right? so that they can be open to the experience. Right. That's, I, I talk about, you know, in our museum designs, I talk about that very specifically. I feel like the role of the room for art is just to open people up, right? To get them, you walk in that room, it's beautiful, the light's beautiful. You know, you feel moved just by the space enough that you just open up and then the art fills the space, right? That's, that's, that's the goal. Yes, and I'd love to get you to talk about some of the museum architecture that you've done and to say that I've experienced many of them and they have different characters to them. I mean, there's a, cons- there's a consistency to certain aspects of them 
but as you were just describing like the goal of the room, I love that idea, by the way, of, uh, you know, having like the specific spaces have specific goals, some of which will be, you know, compatible and others of which will be contradictory to other spaces. Um, but I was thinking about my first experience of the Clifford Still Museum. And I often cite that museum as the perfect museum space. Uh, I, I love the architecture. I love the light. I love the material. I love the movement of the visitor through the space. And I think the art loves the architecture mm. um, in a way that I've actually never seen in another museum. Mm. I think those paintings, um, of course, they're drawings and prints and other things too, but those paintings, those monumental paintings, I think love where they live. And I think that is an incredible achievement. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, yeah, that, that project, I mean, it was such a gift to be able to design that building for that art. And in that, knowing that people hadn't seen most of the art and you're really introducing people to this full body of work. Um, yeah, what a gift as a, as a commission. And to have that kind of focus on a single person's voice you know, just that body of work being so specific. It, all, all, all of it just allowed us to be as specific. You know, so many museums you're, you're designing for pieces, you know, certain pieces today, the galleries will change out, um, scale of the work changes. And, and with the Clifford Still Museum, it was, you know, it was like, it was like a bespoke suit. <laughs> you know, you're really fitting a body um, as, as exquisitely as you, and perfectly as you, possibly can but for me when we you know when we won that commission it was really about finding the architect you know finding the right architecture for that work and as you mentioned you know our work varies so much even in the museums the form material experience you know it just I mean the way we work the way I think is you're really trying to find an architecture that you don't know yet, you know, inspired by the subject and the place and the cultural moment, you know, all of those forces are out there. You know, all the alchemy of possibility is, is out there in the cities and the landscape and the subject and, and you dive in and try to, try to wrangle some components of those things and, and find the kind of voice of the architecture. And still was such a treat because I knew the work I knew it from when I went to Columbia. I discovered the work when I was in graduate school at Columbia. I was completely blown away. That's when the still room was still at the Met. Um, so, you know, it was sort of already in my head, the spirit of it, the nature of it. And then, you know, work, working with Dean and some of the other scholars to really understand the work. It was, yeah, incredible treat. And it, it is one of those moments I have to say, I've told this story before. You know, we worked on that building and we revised it a tremendous amount because of the recession in 2007 through 2009, whenever it was. So it was a kind of rangy, rambling, although very focused process. And the building was done and I was flying between New York and Portland and I stopped to see it uh, before the art was installed. And I was devastated. I thought we had failed. I was just, I, I called the office. I was, I was really just beside myself because I, I just felt the building didn't have the right presence and 
you know, and then uh, it was a month or two later when, when it opened and I came and saw the art in it and it just locked. It just did that thing. It did that thing that people see. But, you know, the reason you respond the way you did, you know, and that doesn't always happen. And I think this still is a rare, for all the reasons I just said, it's a rare opportunity. But it did just lock in some kind of magical way that's, you know, bigger than the arch- bigger than the architectural intent even, you know, just something about that building. There's so much in what you just said. And I'm particularly drawn to this idea of finding things that don't yet exist. Yeah. And as we think about that and, and come back to that, I just wanted to, to note that I have heard you tell that story before, but I forgot that <laughs> story. And every time that I think about that, I, I think about um, Daniel Liebskind's Jewish Museum in Berlin, which uh-huh. I experienced without art uh, right. because I think that was the opposite experience uh, uh-huh. where the building really did probably what it was supposed to when it was empty and so they left it empty for a while. And then I remember going back and seeing it with art and feeling like it, it wasn't as successful. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, you know, and maybe people who only saw the building with art, I'm talking about the Leapskind building um, in Berlin, didn't have that experience. But yeah. I think, you know, w- when you install a museum exhibition, of course, everything goes up just on the walls or, or in the space, but without labels. And then you can really tell if you did a great job, if after the labels are added, the show still looks great. Right. It's true. <laughs> it is true. Right. Yeah. How, how you hang a show is everything. Yeah. I, I, in fact, beautifully hung shows make up for a lot of mediocre architecture. I, I, I've noticed and I certainly won't name names, but, I've you know read reviews of of buildings that rave about the architecture, and then I go, and as an architect, just look at it critically, and I realize, no, that's just a beautiful show and a beautiful collection, <laughs> and the building's not doing much, just kind of staying out of the way, you know, but it's it really makes a it makes a huge, a huge difference how 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 the work's hung, I mean the quality of work, but even that just how it's hung, is is everything, and I've learned that. Over the years, but you know, it's interesting. It made me think when you're talking about the Leibniz building. A lot of architecture, the intent. In fact, I would say most, and and even most interesting architecture, the intent is for the building to be the answer. The intent of the architect is to make the building the answer to the problem. Um, and in my practice and my thinking, I don't think the building is ever the answer. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think that's even the role of architecture. For the building to be the answer. I, th- I think the building is nothing more than the amplifier, right? It's the amplifier of whatever activities, you know, intended to happen within it. It's the amplifier of how you see its place in a city or a landscape. But it's, you know, it should really never be the subject, right? It should never. That's not the role of architecture. Sculpture. Yes, art, yes, even. And then you could even question that, actually tell you the truth, right? Because, you know, good art in any form is just provocative and makes you think 
you know, it takes you somewhere beyond just the form or the composition or the color or, right? It's transformative in some way or another. But architecture is funny. I think, I think in the majority of cases, the actual intent is, is for the architect to, to kind of stand alone. You know, the, art, the artifact to stand alone. And yeah, it's usually disappointing, frankly, with that. When, it, when in that is the intent. Not always, sometimes it's beautiful, you know, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but it could potentially be beautiful and not functional. Right. But even those terms are, are totally different philosophically and, and structurally um, from the idea of being an amplifier. Uh, yeah. And I was thinking about how this year has been about giving voice to a lot of voices that we haven't heard or a lot of stories that, you know, haven't been told and, and how important amplification has been particularly this year. And I, I wonder, yeah, I, I wonder how that's maybe impacted your thinking. Uh-huh. It's interesting. I am. Um, yeah. I mean, this year has had a profound influence on, on ev everyone and every creative person, obviously. And I, I think, I was thinking, I thought about this earlier in the pandemic and I wrote a little piece, but I can't even remember which, what it was in, but um, it was in Medium. But I think the idea that what we have been afforded, a lot of us, and maybe, maybe those of us who are most fortunate, but we were, we've been afforded the time to listen. And I think culturally, that's what's happened with the Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's you know, as, as we know, a lot of those, a lot of this inherent discrimination, inherent violence, culturally inherent violence, discrimination has been going on for ever, right? And for some reason, we heard it. We heard it and saw it. And it had everything to do with the pandemic, I think. I think people's lives being paused and in you know early summer, that becoming a focus. I think it, without the pandemic, it would never have happened. I really believe it. I mean, definitely things and the outrage, the awareness and the outrage was building, no question, but it was the context, I think, which allowed us all to really truly see it in a way that we hadn't seen it before. Don't you? Yes. And as you, as you were just talking, I, sometimes I get like, I don't know, almost an intuition or something about like a question to ask or something to, to pause it. And, and I don't even think it's necessarily mine. I don't know where it comes from. Maybe that's like the muse or, or whatever, but as you were as you were sharing that, I, I wanted to ask you if you have a spiritual practice or a spiritual belief system. I do not have a, a kind of organized or defined uh, spiritual belief system or practice. I, I do believe that there's a force of good in the world. Um, and the way I define it um, is really 
the kind of truth that I see in beauty um, and the and the and the possibilities of beauty, which then also brings in notions of awe and wonder. Um, I just I, when I encounter experiences that provoke those emotions, you know, I I, I see the truth in it, and I, I I think of that as a bigger force than you know than than we normally encounter in our day-to-day lives. So I, I suppose I have a spiritual belief in beauty, um, which I've actually never said it to anyone before, i tell you the truth. Um, in fact, I've been talking about this the last year that my dream commission, and I taught a couple studios, one at Cooper and one at Columbia on this to, to uh, make contemporary relevant spiritual space in whatever form and however one addresses the notion of spiritual space. Um, but it's a project I want to do. It's, it's actually, I want to make new spiritual space. I want to insert that. I want to insert the, the dialogue of, of spiritual space back into our culture outside of organized religion, because I think it's critical. I think it's absolutely critical. I love that idea so much. And, you know, the first museum exhibition that I ever curated was actually an exhibition on Louis Kahn's synagogue architecture. Wow. Uh, for, for the Jewish Museum in New York and um, got to, to travel around to, to build, but then also study, you know, unbuilt projects. But, but looking at... Um, yeah, how you how you create kind of the spiritual space and and the light, you know that that's part of it. And um, and you know, I I really I love that idea of thinking about beauty as a spiritual practice. And and I guess for me, part of why I asked that question is that I don't really necessarily have an organized um, spiritual or traditional spiritual practice either but I do believe in something greater than us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel that that was at play this year. And I feel that a bunch of things came together to change the direction of uh, humanity um, yeah. and not just our country um, because we were going a certain direction and it, it needed something beyond us, I think, to, to facilitate that change. Mm-hmm. No, we, we need those reminders. Maybe not this particularly, not this particular reminder that, you know, with so much tragedy associated with it, but those reminders that there are bigger forces than us, I think humanity needs it. How, how, how well we will learn from this is, uh, is another thing. I remember we, we came uh, we were you know, living in Brooklyn in March. I was coming out to Oregon for five days to you know, visit the office here and then go back. And then we decided, you know, maybe it's not a good time to go back to New York. And my family came out and we were here then until October. Um, and I remember early on in the pandemic, I left the house and drove, drove down the hill and got on a freeway and there was no cars, right? I mean, no one was driving. 
And remember, that's when the air cleared and the pollution index has all changed. And you just wish that those things would, you know, would last. And of course, now everyone's driving again and it's all, it's all changing. So it'll be, you know, how, how much we just go back to our old patterns and how much we learn and how much it's opened us up to see things differently. You know, the, the jury's out. We'll, we'll see. I, I, I think humanity assumes its previous form pretty quickly. <laughs> I think that's actually one of the one of the maybe the strengths and weaknesses of, of humanity is that ability that it, it will just go back to it, assume its form, but we'll see. Yeah, and I think that prior to now, maybe that was positive, but right. maybe now that would be negative. And I, I remember my son was assigned a book. I don't know if it was just his class or the entire school, but, you know, summer reading. And I I read the book with him. Maybe it was his freshman year at boarding school or something. And, and you know, I, I wanted to kind of maintain that kind of connectivity to what he was learning. And, and the book was set at some point in the future, not too far in the future, but humanity was in a, a super different place. And there were no planes anymore. And uh, there was a, the, the two kind of major takeaways for me from that book was a conversation between two characters where one said, do you remember when we used to end our text messages with THX because we didn't have time to write out thanks or even thank you. And in this future society, they had put together a, a museum of, of past technology, which mm-hmm. was in an airport, um, which of course, you know, was defunct because there were no planes mm-hmm. and they had, you know, cell phones and high heeled shoes and, uh, you know, <laughs> And I just I sort of haunted. things that were retired. <laughs> yes, and a lot of people yeah. retired them during the pandemic. <laughs> yes. So yeah. there were a lot of similarities between that futuristic book and and the pandemic. And yeah. and every time I would type THX, I'm like, you know, I I, I don't want to be that person that is so rushed, uh, but. Well, back back to the conversation of, of spiritual space or practice and introspection. I mean, one of the things I think that spiritual practice and spiritual space offered people and can offer people, but I think historically offered people, was time time out. You know, time apart. And, you know, when you when you stepped into that church on Sunday or synagogue on, you know, Friday night and whatever, you know, you were stepping away from the day to day and you were in a space of awe and wonder that was collective and bigger than you. Right. And, and that, I think that afforded a kind of, you know, it's kind of goes back to, to what we talked about relative to museums and, you know, obviously in, in churches with all the iconography and or the music it just takes you to a different place and opens you up to thinking about things that you don't think about in your daily life. And I do think to your point, not flying, being with the family. I mean, I can't believe how well, you know, I get along with my wife and daughter after what, 10 months of being together. 
I mean, we just, it's just been kind of unbelievably lovely, right? <laughs> you know, whereas, you know, you come home after work and the homework's not done and you've had a terrible day at work and, you know, you're kind of, you're ready to like, you know, blame someone for something, right? <laughs> Take it out on somebody or, you know, all of the normal stresses of day-to-day life. They just melt away. You know, I don't, I don't have to pack to get on a plane tomorrow. I don't have to. You're absolutely right. I mean, in in some ways, the pandemic has afforded us time that we never, never would have had. Absolutely, never would have had. It's it's it's, its own ritual. Yes, and I think as people prepare to enter a sacred space or a space that they associate with the possibility of of transformation or uh or information then people work on themselves you know like there's a and of course some cultures you know have rituals that that involve preparing for that whether it's washing your hands or washing your feet or uh but i had a i had an experience in a a really 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 contemporary buddhist temple outside of thailand last year uh and at first I was kind of um, taken aback by the temple because I like, you know, what I would call a traditional Buddhist temple, you know, old and kind of right. open. And and this is really designed for people now and people in the future. And so it's, it's white. It's, you know, made with um, kind of expensive materials. Uh, you know, the way that you wander in, you know, you go through these different like sensory deprivations, you know, um, like they control the lighting and uh, the sound and and no one talks. And in this particular temple, everyone has to wear white um, and everything that you're wearing has to be white. So I happened to be wearing a a blouse that had wooden buttons and, and, you know, they covered the wooden buttons with like these white stickers, you know? So, I mean, there were these um, incredible it, it, it was amazing. And, and I went in there with a lot of expectation because I was like, you know, this is a, an amazing space. Like, I bet I'm going to come up with, I'm going to get a message. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. and it was a, a place to sit in meditation and you could sit for as long as you wanted. And there were a lot of other people in there too. And women were on one side and men were on the other. And, and it took me a little while to adjust. Like my ears were almost buzzing and stuff. Uh, yeah. But once I relaxed into it, I did get a message. And it was something that I, you know, had been trying to solve. Fantastic. No, I, I, those, all of those different rituals and ceremonies, I mean, and, and you know, frankly, institutions and buildings exist for a reason. <laughs> you know, they've, they've been with us as, in fact, I'm, re- I'm reading this book on God, the origin of the idea of God. I forget the author. I can get it, but um, I forget who the author is. But anyway, just going back and understanding the development and why we, we, you know, humanity developed that prospect. You know, what in, both what inspired it through circumstance and what needs were created that it solved. Um, I mean, it's real. You can you can you can critique it in, in myriad different ways. And it's really easy, but at the same time, I think the the need is there. The the 
the service it provides, right, of those spaces and those rituals and those conversations. I mean, one of the things that came up when I was teaching the studio at Columbia was the notion of where does one have ethical conversation, right? When do we talk about larger ethical issues with a group where we feel safe, you know, to express ourselves, to open up, to, to hear different things, right? It's certainly not the news media, right? Or the blogosphere, I guess many people do that. But I think place uh, plays a critical role in that, just as you just spoke about it in the ceremony. And I think the covering up the buttons is fantastic. You know, I, I think it's fantastic. And you're right, it probably fit perfectly with that experience. Whereas in some contexts, people would just think, what, what, what an absurdity, right? Why is that necessary? But you, you know, I'm sure you, the, the clarity of how critical it was, was just apparent that way. And people seek it. I mean, why do you go to sporting events, right? In, in, the, old, in the old stadium here that we retrofitted for, um, did in addition to for soccer in Portland, in the old stadium from the 30s, you know, you, you enter through an arcade, it's dark off the street, you go through the tunnels, the vomitories, and you see the green of the field, and then you walk into this stadium space, and it's transcendent. I mean, those those, and you're and you're in this other world that you you know takes you away for two hours from your day to day. So people seek it at sports. You know, they seek it. Theater is such a perfect one. You know, theater is just you know such a literal or music when the when the house lights go down for that. You know, for that beat right before it starts, ah, oh, there's a reason those rituals are there too, right? It's perfect. It's just a perfect thing. But to, to, to go through those rituals and then just be left with time or space or silence is really something, is, is really quite something. And I guess it's maybe, maybe I'm, it's just what I seek. <laughs> maybe that's why. It is. It's what I what I seek when I go to the landscape of northeastern Oregon. It's what I seek. Yeah. How do you start something new? How do you start something new? That's a great question. Um, I think for me, uh, I listen. Right to and listen with my eyes and ears and mind you know, to, to try to to see what's there, right? To really try to learn what's possible, right? Because I think the, the possible doesn't come from me, it, it exists. It's out there and you just have to see it and kind of wrangle it and give it life, you know, and, and give it context so that it can... I mean, it's it's why the process in the office is so visual. You know, we do all these concept models and all these things that don't look like buildings <laughs> along the process to just keep provoking the kind of possibility of certain ideas to keep them alive until we can find the building form of it, which always comes very late in our process to the to the frustration of many clients sometimes. <laughs> Um, yeah, listening is it. I mean, listening in all its forms, 
It's absolutely magical, actually. It's it's a it's a great discipline, and it's probably the most exciting thing for me of of a project is is that is that process of of, of listening. And there's a you know you're listening for something. It is it isn't necessarily just wide open, you know. And I think as I probably get better at listening farther into my practice because you know what you're listening for. You don't know what it is necessarily, right? But it's a, you're, you know, each project is a particular, requires a particular ear, I guess, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Yeah. When, when you see it or feel it or know it, mm-hmm. what does that feel like for you? Yeah, it's, it's magical. It's, it's everything. It's why I do it. <laughs> um, yeah. Is it addicting, that, uh, that achievement? I don't, it's inspiring because when, when it comes, you know, and, and it's, you, you usually know when, it's come, when it has arrived because everyone sees it. You know, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the client will see it. You, you know, the, the staff will see it. The team sees it. You know, it, it's it's truth. You know, it, it comes in the form of truth in some fashion, right? And that's when you know it's there. Is it's not just you know, it's not just my truth. I mean, that's when you know it's wrong. Actually, <laughs> when, when you, which everyone does, right? And I certainly do. Is you try to assert something that you think is right, and of course. If it's not shared, then it's probably not right. You know, it takes a while to admit that to yourself, but <laughs> right. But yeah, it seems to me when it comes, it comes in that form, some form of truth where everyone can see it. It doesn't mean everyone sees it in the same way, but it resonates in some way that everyone can engage it, you know, enters into it with you. And that's when it's exciting. And you know, other creative people talk about this all the time. It's like, you also know when it's come, when it, when you begin serving it, right? You, you begin serving the idea, the thing itself, rather than searching for it. It kind of flips everything. It starts to tell you what to do. You start to know the right answers. You know, you let it guide the work rather than you out there trying to muscle it into some some form or another, right? It's 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 amazing thing. It's amazing thing. I th- I think that's why any creative is doing their work is right for that moment when it comes, right? And it doesn't always come. You know, there's certain you you, you know Clifford Still would do two versions of the paintings. What did he call them? He had a word for them. I forget. But he would do multiple versions of the paintings, trying to get it right. Same paintings. And he wasn't doing copies. He was just searching, trying to get that voice out, you know, or get to that voice. I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was really fascinating. The, the, kind, of, the kind of iterative search, just subtle shifts in things to see if the difference is there and what it means. I'm really interested in that idea of the shift from the search to the service. And I think a lot about the idea of flow Mm -hmm. and, you know, and being kind of in 
what you described is sort of like a flow state, right? Where things just, they just kind of keep going because you're on the right path. And, and, um, and I, I, I'm really drawn to that too. I mean, it's not like to call it creative problem solving is way too like, you know, like pedantic, like it's not that, you know, it's about like rising up in service of something greater, you know, and, and these essential concepts of truth and beauty and, and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, and, and seeing, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, because you, you want the, the potential of the ideas in a building or a space, you want people to see it, right? So I think that that's, I think that's why the idea of service is so, is a real distinction in, in, in architecture. You know, back to that original conversation we had about architecture as an artifact or as an amplifier. I, I think when the architecture becomes, when that, when it crosses that threshold and you're really serving it, right? I mean, the, the intent then is to, is, to, is to have the building become some form of lens so everyone can see it and experience it and, and, and feel it. It's like a redirection. You know, you're manifesting forces. You're manifesting forces that exist in the world, right? And, and it's so interesting too, what I've had conversations with other creatives Years ago in the first book, Doug Eakin and Anne Hamilton. And, and it, what's so gratifying is that I learned very early on, gave me, it gave me, helped give me confidence in the pursuit is, you know, many, many creatives feel, the, it doesn't matter what the medium is, you're all kind of after it in the same, with the same intent, all right, to, to sort of wrangle something into the world in a way that people see it and can share it. And engage it in some fashion or another. Do you think that ability to see is? Do you think it has the capacity to be compounded? Do you think once you've seen something, like you don't unsee it, you just like see more? Oh yeah, there's there's yeah. What is, what is, there's there's a quote from Rilke that I that I saved that has something about, something that says that we're put on earth. And I think it has to do with poetry too, probably obviously, but to, you know, I can't even remember, like render a building, a tree and a flower more real and more potent than it would be without dot, 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 those words, that painting, that building, right? That that idea of of those forces of truth, beauty, knowledge, working, you know, th- through through us into some form, creative form, becomes a kind of concentration of that force, whatever it is, right? Whatever that force that we're grappling with, you know, when I think when it's done at its best, right? That's why, that's why we can see it then so clearly because it's been concentrated in some way, you know, and separated in some way that it makes it apparent, you know, and it kind of, you know, those things when you, when you see work that just moves you, 
right? You don't have to understand it so much, you know, you don't have to, but you see something in it that just affects you in an almost physical way. Yeah, that concept, I love that idea of concentration, that that, that that act of giving it life in a painting or an opera or a building is a form of concentrating these components of life in a way that they're just profound. Yeah. Has architecture ever made you cry? Yes, frankly, it has. To tell you the truth, um, yeah, I would say first time in the courtyard of Salk Institute, no question about that. Um, I mean, as a kid, this is just such a, you know, I don't think anyone in my family had ever been to Europe. And I went to my junior year, I went abroad and, you know, I, I went into Notre Dame on a rainy day. This is, this will never happen again. It's torture probably to young people to hear this. I went there on a rainy day and there was like 20 people in Notre Dame in the winter. It was January. And I just sat there and it was, I was just so powerfully moved. I mean, the potential of architecture, you know, what it does, what the voice of architecture that no other medium has, you know, when you, when you engage it, when you find it like that, um, yeah, incredible. There is something about being with other people in space. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about your description of, of people coming into the stadium, um, soccer stadiums and, and that kind of shared experience. Uh, but there's also something about finding yourself alone in a space that has, or, or with a reduced number of people and, yeah. As, as you described that sometime, not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was uh, in Saint-Chapelle and I went to the upper uh, gallery, upper floor, and I don't know why or how, but somehow everyone that had been up there like must have gone down the stairs as I, you know, kind of came up the other side. And for a brief moment, I was in there by myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. And... Incredible. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Perfect experiences. Yeah. No, there's, there's, there's a bit of, been a, been a few of them. I mean, it's what, it's what, it's interesting because my, my belief in the power of space started in the landscape. I mean, I showed you the view out my window. <laughs> you should see the light right now. It's unbelievable. But you know, in, in Oregon, when you go East, out into the desert, it's there's just so many moments of awe and wonder and, and beauty. And then I, you know, when I, it, it is truly when I went to Europe for the first time and went into some of those amazing spaces. Um, it's when I could really see, it's, the, it's when I first saw the potential of architecture to evoke some of that same, you know, visceral response kind of otherworldly you know, some somewhat transcendent experience that makes you see yourself in the world in a different way. And arch yeah, architecture does that. Architecture does. Yeah, it, it can and it does. And I'm really grateful that you also have emphasized these words of awe and wonder. And sometimes I find myself 
thinking about how to be of greater service and how to do more in the world. And I know that art, you know, I, I mean, I think it's for everyone, you know, um, but, but not everyone thinks that. Uh, and I think that's maybe one of the keys on, on how to do good um, with or without art and with or without architecture, um, but, but using art and architecture, you know, through the purpose of trying to propagate these, these notions of, of awe and wonder. Uh, I, I think that, I think that feels really important. But it's, yeah, that's a great question. And I think also looping back to what you the awarenesses that have been raised um, over the course of the pandemic, you know, a, a lot of the awareness about critical sociocultural issues. Um, and you see a lot of contemporary art being almost applied art to, to these issues of equity and access and, and, you know, critical and, and, and very important. But I think also at one level, and, and I think this is the part where art comes under criticism. When I think art's milieu, it's, it's sort of most potent milieu is, is the realm of awe and wonder when it, when it transcends the day to day and offers you some insight that isn't about contemporary issues, right? That isn't about the struggles of everyday life, but, but, you know, f focuses you on a higher game, <laughs> right? Or, or, or just allows you to make a leap beyond the struggles of what's happening today. I mean, those, it sounds very romantic, um, but the idea of art offering those doors or those windows or those lenses to step through that you wouldn't step through without them, you know, without that poem, that story, that play. Yeah, right. I mean, you go you go to a powerful play and you come out of that room a different person, right? And it, you know, it, 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 a lot of times it's not the genre of the play, you know. It's it's not any of the it's, it's not any of the literal things that you can that you think you already know when you walk in, oh boy, it's another British play, you know, you know, upper middle class white people, what is that, you know, but there's something about the message that transcends that context that's so easy to critique, right? Um, but I think if, if, if it's operating in that realm of pure idea, it's transcends it, right? That's what we hope anyway. Yeah, I have, talked a lot this year about the idea of of like a hell yes you know and and what are things that are a hell yes and <laughs> that feels like a hell yes <laughs> <laughs> i love that i love that yeah it's good to assert hell yeses it's really good <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you so much for talking with me today i really really enjoyed it yeah it's fun and that was an hour that went that fast see mm -hmm. That's why I was excited about us talking. Yeah, well, thanks for your questions too. I mean, I have never got a chance to talk about these things as openly 
and literally, you know, the kind of spiritual components of things. Um, I mean, I used beauty and truth, my gosh. <laughs> we'll be in touch. Okay. Right. okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simonilla. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.